Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and Aaron Miller is my co-host as usual. This week we'll be talking about a few different topics. We're going to start out by talking about Google's big restructuring move from earlier this week. Google has decided to restructure itself and create a new parent company called Alphabet with Google as it currently is slimming down and uh, hiving off some of the other parts of the business into separate subsidiaries that will sit under this Alphabet umbrella. Um, and so that'll be our first topic today, talking about what that means and why they're doing it and any other implications it might have. The second topic will be our question of the week. And for our question of the week, we'll be talking about privacy and uh, especially how the different major smartphone players shape up on privacy and what implications that has for their users and also for their ability to create compelling services, especially cloud services. And then our third topic will be payments, mobile payments. And we're going to talk about um, some news about current C, one of the uh, major payment standards that had some news this week. And then we'll also be talking about Samsung Pay that was announced today, the day that we're recording this, and uh, all of this in the context of Apple Pay and, and how payments are likely to evolve generally. And then we'll wrap up the, the day today with uh, our weekly pick, and it's Aaron's turn to do that this week. So we'll start out talking about Google's alphabet move. It's something I wrote a blog post about earlier in the week, sort of evaluating why this happened. But Aaron, I, I haven't heard yet your thoughts on all this. So do you want to kick us off? What was your reaction to all this stuff? Yeah, I mean, it was, it kind of came out of the blue in one sense, although the, all the Berkshire Hathaway talk from Larry Page earlier this year kind of came into focus and made a lot more sense. I think, I think when he was making those statements he was sort of laying the sort of pr groundwork for what was happening yeah um i i personally i think it's a good move um i i actually think it's a move that imposes a certain amount of self-discipline on google as a as a company or i should say alphabet <laughs> um and and we can talk more about what i mean by that but generally i, I think it's creative and will be really interesting it it is going to make Google's failures even more apparent um, because these are going to be entire companies that are going to die off if they don't work, you know, versus just internal initiatives. I think they're setting themselves to a higher standard by doing this. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, on the one hand, it, it provides one layer more of transparency. You know, at the moment, Google kind of reports all its advertising businesses together, which is going to be the vast majority of what will be the Google subsidiary under Alphabet and then kind of an other category. But that other category includes things like Google Pay and Nexus devices and things like that, as well as all these other activities. So by separating them off, we'll get a measure of increased transparency around that other category. But as I understand it, they're only going to put report to major kind of entities underneath Alphabet. One will be Google in its new sort of slimmed down form, and the other one will be kind of everything else lumped together. So I do wonder to what extent we'll really get visibility into the underlying performance of, you know, Nest, for example, or Calico, or any of these other initiatives under there. I think we're all still waiting to see exactly how they're going to report going forward, but certainly some of the better reporting about all this has indicated there's only going to be these two high-level entities, kind of Alphabet, uh, Google, and then by implication, kind of the rest of Alphabet that isn't Google. So from that perspective, um, you know, we're going to get some more transparency. I think all the kind of um, newer businesses, if you like, that aren't yet profitable or even generating revenue in many cases will be lumped together and we'll be able to see quite how bad, presumably, that performance is. Uh, and at the same time, I think the core Google business will be allowed to shine a lot more because you'll have all that unprofitable and, and non-revenue generating stuff stripped out from it. And I think it'll make the core Google business look better. But at the same time, as you say, I tend to agree that the rest of those businesses are potentially suddenly going to look really awful in terms of their current performance. And um, that may well place pressure on the company, both to provide more transparency about the individual components of that, and also to eventually wind down some of those businesses if that doesn't start to turn around at some point. I, I think in that regard, they're maybe being a little naive, um, which is a concern I have. I, I think, for example, the Motorola purchase was a, a pretty naive kind of endeavor on Google's part. And when you watch the way that finally all spun out, it was clear that they kind of made a rash decision as far as Motorola was concerned. And uh, what's interesting to me is that Google's executives, you know, its leadership has the power to do that kind of thing quickly. 
And I wonder how quickly this was all pulled together. Um, it doesn't, it, 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 strangely enough, it didn't have the vibe of like a, a, a long percolating master plan. Does that make sense? Like the alphabet announcement seemed like the sort of thing that they probably were working on for months rather than years as far as long-term strategy is concerned. Um, and I think Google still has a tendency to, to do things like that, that they have a tendency to just sort of pull the trigger on ideas qu relatively quickly and maybe not as thoroughly and methodically as other companies might. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there was at least one report that they had been working on the idea for several years, but it was interesting to me that, you know, they made this move after they brought on a new CFO who came from Wall Street, uh, Ruth Porat. Um, you know, it's certainly not something they could have cooked up since she arrived, but certainly seems like they may well have brought her on in part to kind of oversee this transition and the greater transparency that it entails. Um, she certainly talked about transparency a lot on the last earnings call. Um, one of my big worries, which kind of goes along with what you were just saying about Motorola, is that we still don't really know what the criteria are that the management at, at Google and now Alphabet uses to decide what to invest in. Um, you know, it seems there's always a temptation to believe it's simply what Larry and Sergey personally find interesting. Um, and there were a lot of references in the blog post, which was kind of telling that it was a blog post, first and foremost, that announced this whole move. There were a lot of references in there to words like meaningful and interesting rather than profitable <laughs> or growing. Right. Um, you know, there were references to innovation and so on too, and, and there's clearly implications about revenue growth. But my worry is, you know, kind of none of this stuff has had any kind of relationship to the core Google business, you know, whether it's Calico or, you know, robotics and things like that. A lot of these things seem very removed, and this conglomerate structure kind of, you know, is designed for those kinds of unconnected businesses. But conglomerates also typically have some kind of investment strategy. They have kind of a well-articulated plan that says, you know, these are the kinds of businesses we invest in. This is why these are the criteria that we look at. This is, you know, our plan for the next few years and so on. And, you know, Google isn't that kind of company. Larry Page isn't that kind of CEO. Um, and so, you know, even though there are these comparisons to Berkshire Hathaway, it's an extremely different company, which is something I've written about too. You know, the, the main difference being you've got one really profitable core entity and lots of other stuff that doesn't make any money and is therefore entirely financially dependent on the core business, which is very different from most conglomerates where, uh, and especially Berkshire Hathaway, where the individual parts of that business are all profitable in their own rights. Um, so there's all kinds of differences. And I just worry that Larry Page is kind of creating the kind of business that he's not well suited to run. And uh, maybe he and Sergey should go off and run these individual bits of alphabet um, that are sort of new and interesting, but allow somebody else to come in and kind of oversee Alphabet as an, as an entire entity because they'll be better suited to making those kinds of management investment decisions. Yeah, I agree. I, I think if there's a money quote in that blog post, it's this one where he, he starts a paragraph saying, Sergey and I are seriously in the business of starting new things. Right. I, I think that's probably their, their mantra as far as the alphabet, sort of the other side of alphabet is concerned. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, there's, there's a cultural thing in Silicon Valley that ties to this. Obviously, it's a place of a lot of innovation. It also has a, a, a rich history of companies sort of pursuing, you know, out there kind of things. I think of like Xerox's park right. um, facility or... It, it, and I imagine that the, that's what these guys are thinking to themselves. The question is whether or not they'll be any good at that. And the truth is up to now, we don't have a ton of evidence that they are good at taking new things and turning them into profitable companies. I mean, really for them, Google still at this point can only hang its hat on, on search and the ad revenue that comes from that as its big, huge success. You know, there are other things that, that, that are successful in by other measures in term like Android and its in market penetration, but just in terms of profitability, you know, that is a that taking something new and building it into a profitable company, they don't yet have a very mature track record as far as that goes. Right, yeah, and that's the challenge. Almost everything they've done that has worked out for them has been closely tied to the core kind of search and advertising business rather than being something completely new. Um, and, you know, most of the stuff that is completely new is so small and unprofitable and non-revenue generating that it's very hard to evaluate whether they've made the right bets there either. So there's really not much of a track record to go on in terms of evaluating Google as a company that can innovate in completely new areas. 
Yeah, that said, I, I, I do think this is a move that, that provides encouraging self-discipline um, for, for Sergey and then Larry. And it's because each of these companies standing on their own um, will have a little more scrutiny, even though, like you said, they're only going to report essentially two divisions of Alphabet. Um, the truth is, if you are the kind of person who loves trying new things and don't care necessarily if they ever turn a profit or how much money you have to sink into them, um, hiding them as a division within a company is easily the preferable approach, right? Because right. you can sort of bury it in accounting. With these separate companies, with CEOs of, of each of these companies, it will take more self-discipline on their part. And I, and I think that's a good thing. And I think it, the truth is they were doing this anyway, right? And now that they're doing it under this new structure, I think shareholders ought to be encouraged um, because hopefully it means they're not going to be tempted to hide these sort of boondoggles you know, in some obscure department in Google's books. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think there's something to cheer here. I was kind of surprised by quite how positive the investor response was because ultimately the top and bottom lines of Alphabet are going to be the same as they have been for Google. But I think it's probably a hope that A, the core Google business will look better and B, that there will be this increased transparency over time that likely drove that kind of stock market response to the whole thing. Yeah, I think something else that deserves mention is this idea that they're going to have stronger, more independent CEOs over each of these ventures. Right. And there is something to that as well. I think being stuck inside a large company's bureaucracy can be really limiting. For example, it's hard to get a board's attention if you're one of a dozen sort of creative ventures. And, and you really do need a board of directors in a healthy company to be giving counsel advice direction and so forth. And... Uh, and, and I think the fact that each of these companies can establish a separate board of directors that has full legal authority for managing the business, I think there's a lot of value in that. Um, and I think it's not just about having strong CEOs. I think it's just having strong upper management altogether where each of these ventures can kind of decide their own fate. And that's not entirely true because obviously these are all going to get subsidized right, by, absolutely. By, by ad revenue from Google. But um, but that said, you know, given their budget, it's not any different than investors, right? I mean, they're going to be ad, the ad business is essentially going to be their investor and they're going to be budgeted a certain amount. And if they need more, they're going to have to justify that. And, but generally I think each of these ventures is going to have more power to kind of decide its own fate and make quicker decisions going forward. And I think that's also a good thing. Yeah, it'll be very interesting, I think, to see how this all plays out over the next few months. So it sounds like uh, from one report I read, at least they were going to start reporting this way in the fourth quarter. Um, so we'll have one more quarter right. of kind of reporting the current way. And then the following quarter will be when they start to split this out. So it'll be a while before we really see the, all the implications of this kind of off the bat. And then a while longer before we'll see some of those benefits start to flow through that you've just been talking about as well. The, the legal approach to this is really interesting. My, the, the lawyer side of me was sort of fascinated by how they were going to do this because essentially they're actually going to start Alphabet as a subsidiary of Google and then have them trade places. Right, yeah. And it looked immensely complicated on, on the SEC filing, the process <laughs> by which they're going to do this. Yeah, well, I mean, they had to explain it. This is all, and, and Google's a Delaware company like the majority of major companies are, and so there's more flexible law there. In, in Delaware for corporations to pull off things like this, especially without shareholder votes. And, and that's part of the benefit of the approach that they're taking is it doesn't require shareholder approval, which is mm -hmm. great for them. Right. But the other thing I think that's really cool about this approach is each of these separate companies will now be much easier to spin off. Yeah. Because r rather than being a major business within Google where they could potentially have this issue of needing a shareholder vote for something that would essentially be selling off a major part of the business, they'll, they'll Google's just going to be a shareholder in all these new companies. Right. Mm -hmm. And as such, they won't quite need the same amount of shareholder involvement to, say, spin. Like, let's say they decide to spin off Nest, mm -hmm. you know, and or divest themselves from Nest. Um, or have Nest issue an IPO, right. right? All of those are going to be a lot easier to do with this new structure. And so I think there are a lot of legal advantages to the to the alphabet thing. Yeah, that was one thing that I, I felt as well, both both good and bad. Like if, a, if a, one of these subsidiaries is doing really badly, then just kind of either selling it off or shutting it down is quite easy. Um, and it's kind of, you know, clean on the financial statements. But if you want to spin it off or give it its own, 
you know, public offering or whatever, then then that makes that easier too. So yeah, that that's that is one interesting aspect, especially when it comes to some of the things that are more sort of self-contained. Whether it is Nest, which is obviously has been a business in its own right all along, or something like Calico, which presumably is going to operate more or less independently from the rest of Google anyway. So it makes a lot of sense in that sense. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to our second topic, which is our question of the week. And it's my turn to kind of do most of the talking this time around. Hopefully we'll still have a good discussion. Um, And the question here is, you know, what are the different levels of privacy and privacy protections afforded by the major smartphone players? Yeah. And this is actually a topic that Yan and I have been kicking around for it's been a couple months now. Yeah, it's one of the early questions that we've been considering. I think we've been waiting for the timing to be right. And I wouldn't say it's the timing is perfect. There wasn't anything huge in the news lately on privacy. I think I think probably the closest thing to that is uh, the hullabaloo about content blockers in iOS 9 mm-hmm. um, and that people will be able to block advertising. And there have been some prominent bloggers who have made comments about how whiny certain websites are being about this because they're the ones and you know what's advertising is a big deal today because it's intrusive as far as privacy is concerned Mm -hmm. but for this discussion we're going to limit it to smartphone vendors yeah and so yeah can you kind of let's start off by just sort of talking about the major players can you give us a sense of what level of privacy we sort of can expect from each of the major smartphone vendors. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I mostly talk about probably platform vendors, although we can talk about individual device vendors too, um, because it's really kind of Google and Microsoft rather than the companies that make smartphones based on their platforms that make most of these decisions because the data collection and so on happens in software, which they control. Uh, And then obviously Apple is the other one. Um, you know, and I think the best way to think about it is to put Apple and Google kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum, not in terms of how respectful they are of privacy, but in terms of their interpretations of what it means to uh, maintain and respect users' privacy. Um, you know, from Apple's perspective, it's mostly about just not collecting a lot of data in the first place. And when you do collect it, that it largely stays on the device itself. So, you know, anything that Apple knows about you in terms of your location, in terms of your search history, all that kind of stuff. that stays on your device and they've always made a big deal out of that that they don't you know send that back and keep some database on their users somewhere that is available for other purposes you know you put google at the opposite end of the spectrum where essentially everything that you do in android gets captured somewhere on a server in the cloud um, and does build up a profile of you and your usage habits and your interests and so on over time Microsoft with Windows Phone is sort of in the middle to some extent. Um, They have talked up privacy more than Google has and and have said some of the same things that Apple has. But at the same time, you know, they do have a a cloud-based personal assistant in the form of Cortana, which is roughly equivalent to Siri or Google now. They each have their own unique characteristics, but they're roughly in the same category. But that's cloud-based, and so that information does go back to the cloud. But Microsoft's doing it mostly for the purpose of improving the service for that user. There isn't quite the same kind of user profiling and targeting from an advertising perspective that Google does. So each of them has these different philosophies, and it's very easy to simply say, and clearly this is Apple's argument, this means that Apple is inherently better at privacy than Google is. Um, but really what it is, is, is this their philosophy, at least as a starting point, about where data should live and what you should do with it and why you're collecting it and what you might use it for, where Apple keeps most of that really personally identifiable data on the device, sends only anonymized server requests in the form of searches and things back. Uh, and doesn't collect any data on you centrally. Microsoft does collect some data on you and profiles you, but it's mostly for the purpose of providing a better service to you as a user. Google collects all kinds of data, uses it both for that kind of targeting, but also makes it available uh, when advertisers are trying to reach you. It's important to be clear, that doesn't mean they're selling the data to the advertisers, but it means they use that data to allow advertisers to reach the segments and users that they want to uh, in an aggregate or anonymized form. So so there are some key sort of philosophical differences there. Let's talk about that part with advertisers and what they know, because it, this is a commonly sort of repeated accusation of Google is that if you know if if it's if the product is free to you that means you are the product right the idea is that companies can't sort of give things away for free so they have so if they're giving it to you for free it's probably because they're collecting your information in a way that's profitable to them a lot of people 
phrase this as Google selling your data, but that's not technically true. Right. Can you kind of talk through exactly what's happening with the data that Google's collecting? Yes. How, how it helps advertisers? Yeah, and this is a really important point because it's it's so easy. And, you know, that, that if you're not paying, you're the product thing. It's wonderfully succinct and, you know, captures the essence of a, what is a key argument here. But it's like so many of these simple, pithy sayings is an oversimplification. And the reason that's the case is, there are two customers for Google's products. There's only one customer for Apple's products. So Apple sells its products to us end users, and we're the only customer with Google products. We are clearly customers of those you know, services and products that they create. At the same time, they have a whole other set of customers, and they're the paying customers for the most part, which is the advertisers. And they have what's typically referred to as a two-sided business model, where you, you know, have two separate sets of customers and you have to keep them in balance. That does clearly create attention because what advertisers want is more and more information about you, the users, more and more ability to target you effectively and at a very detailed and granular level. And users typically want to preserve as much of their privacy as possible. So those two groups can be in tension. And yet Google knows, and they're not stupid, that they have to preserve user privacy if they're to create keep that tension in check, essentially. If they're to keep you using their services and not have you be really uneasy about doing so, they have to respect your privacy. So they don't ever sell any of your information to advertisers as such. What they do is create profiles of their users across all kinds of different dimensions. And then when an advertiser comes along and says, we want to show an ad to people who are interested in cat videos or who are in the market for buying a luxury car or who watch certain television programs or whatever google can say okay we've looked in our database we have 35 million of those people and we'll show your ad to them and this is what it will cost or here's the you know automated bidding process where you can compete against other potential advertisers to target those users and so it's never actually selling the data as such it's simply selling the ability to target users based on that data which is very different because your data never leaves google servers uh, those advertisers never know who you personally are if you end up making a purchase from them they might somehow i guess be able to make a connection between whatever targeting they used and the fact that you eventually bought a product but that's a big leap and most advertisers aren't going to be interested in making that connection directly on a user identifiable basis so as I say, it's, it's overselling the point to say that Google sells customers' data, but they clearly do collect a lot of data about you, and they do allow advertisers to target you. As a user, that can feel creepy, and that's worth mentioning. You know, as a user, when you've been searching for cars, you know, on one device, and suddenly you're on a different device uh, using, say, Chrome, for example, or Google Search, and suddenly you start seeing adver advertisements for those cars, even though you're looking for something completely different, it feels a bit creepy. It's as if somebody's following you. But of course, the reality is there's no people involved at all. It's all just computers. So if you feel uneasy about computers knowing lots about you, then you know you can easily feel uncomfortable with that. But the reality is there are no people sitting there building up a profile of you as an individual and knowing all your personal secrets. It's all server-based, and none of that ever leaves Google's servers. Um, and that's that's a key point, because Google's therefore incredibly incentivized to make those uh, databases as secure as possible. Uh, whereas Apple kind of does most of the security by never having it leave the device in the first place, Google has it all on servers and therefore is incredibly protective and arguably has better security protections for some of its cloud services as a result. Yeah, I think one of the things that makes me unsettled about the Google approach is it sounds a lot like what the NSA was telling people. I mean, they collect all this phone records, but their response was, well, we're not looking at them unless we have a really good reason. Um, the point was, though, that they were there right, it all stored on these servers mm -hmm. and accessible to the government in ways that we would never know. And, and there's, there's a trust issue with Google possessing all this information, even if they have promised that they'll use it all wisely. Um, how, do you, how, how big of a deal is that to Google, do you think, as a company strategically to have to deal with that burden of, of just getting their users to trust them? Yeah, I think this is the key thing, and I think we're getting to the real root of the question now, is with Apple, the only thing you have to trust is that they're telling the truth about the fact that it stays on your device, and as long as you keep your device secured and it doesn't fall into the wrong hands, um, then you're safe. Ultimately, your personal information's never gone anywhere. It's not you know, open to be hacked or anything like that, unless your device itself becomes vulnerable. Um, whereas with Google, you do have to have a certain amount of trust. And so Google has been interesting because they've had a history of abusing that trust, not by leaking data or anything like that, but by 
creating, say, defaults around some of their services that leak more data to them than users might have been aware of. Like when Google Buzz first launched, and you may not even remember Google Buzz, it was a fairly short-lived product. But <laughs> when it first memory. launched, it was um, set up in such a way that people by default saw lots of your activity just because you kind of had at some point shared a, uh, a Gmail message with them. Um, and so ex-boyfriends and girlfriends and so on suddenly could see things that you were posting without you realizing. And and then they had the, the circumstance of these um, you know, trucks that go around to check Wi-Fi signals and were actually pulling data from people's Wi-Fi networks um, in the process, which clearly was <laughs> outrageous thing to do. And, you know, was eventually blamed on, on one or two rogue engineers rather than, you know, being company policy. But there's things like that that give people pause and make them wonder about this. At the same time, um, you know, I keep coming back to the fact that there's a privacy or there's an, a spike in interest and concern about privacy any time these stories come out, and it very quickly dies down to a very base level of noise. The reality is that most people, A, don't really understand this stuff, and B, uh, enjoy using the services and, and so on, and, and just simply don't think about the privacy implications. And so, you know, when uh, Tim Cook, for example, makes statements about how nobody wants to use services that work in this way, the reality is that people do. And I don't think Tim Cook actually believes that stuff that he says, but I think he's making the strongest possible case for saying, with Apple, you never have to worry. With Google, there's always this possibility um, that they might abuse that trust in some way. And I think, you know, Google is one of a number of companies that people are slightly suspicious of when it comes to this kind of stuff. And Google has to be extremely careful not to give people reasons to to indulge in those fears and concerns that they might have. You know, it doesn't. in that regard, it doesn't help that, that Google executives have done creepy things relative to privacy or say creepy things relative mm -hmm. to privacy. Yeah. You know, like Eric Schmidt, when he was CEO, had some strange things to say about how when we all turn 18, our, our internet history should be expunged. And he's had other things to say about um, about how much privacy people really should be bothering about. Larry Page going everywhere wearing um, Google Glass. Mm -hmm. At least for a <laughs> you while. Know, I mean, that, yeah. that whole device sort of is like iconic of the trust issue yeah. that, that people have with Google when it comes to privacy. Yeah. Is this idea, you know, there's this like potentially recording device on somebody's face everywhere they go and you know a bunch of the google glass explorers had stories about you know getting kicked out of bars mm -hmm. or getting in fights because of these things yeah and i think that's a good illustration of the tension there now I, I think we're letting apple off the hook a little too easily here because the truth is apple is paying a cost by not collecting data i mean there are ways that they could do what they do better if they have more information about people, in, in what ways does Apple suffer by having its very strong privacy stance? Yeah, and I think that argument too can be overblown, um, but the argument at its root is that because Apple never kind of consolidates all the data that it has about you and it just leaves it on the device, only that device ever knows how to provide you better services. And so if you're using an iPad here and an iPhone there and a Mac over there, you know, each of them might be collecting certain information about you, but the stuff that you did on one device isn't available to the other device when it's trying to serve you up, say, more relevant search results or tell you something about a calendar item that you added on a different device and hasn't been synced. So there are challenges like that where, in theory, Apple can't build that same kind of cloud-based profile on you and therefore can't know as much about you as the user. Uh, and because all the data is only ever sent to servers on an anonymized kind of aggregated basis, um, you know, they never build up the same kind of profile. So in a world where all these companies are building up what they call proactive personal assistants that are designed to prompt you when you need to do things or use the information that they have about you to tell you things that you're not necessarily asking for right now, um, Arguably, Google and Microsoft, who do have that kind of cloud-based approach, are better positioned because they can pull in a variety of sources and build a more complete profile of you. Whereas Apple's stance about keeping everything on the device that you do it on uh, means that everything's only ever at a device level and they don't get as comprehensive a picture. So there's sort of the iPhone version of Jan Dawson, there's the iPad version of Jan Dawson, there's a Mac version of Jan Dawson, and none of them are connected to each other in any way. And so if I only ever search for movie recommendations on my Mac, but now I'm looking for a movie on my phone, um, I'm out of luck, basically. Whereas with Google, I might be served up more relevant results based on stuff that I've searched for before. So that, that's the potential downside. Um, you know, I think the fact that we use our smartphones more and more for these kinds of things means that there's probably um, not as significant a problem as it might seem just because a lot of your activity is on that single device where you're most likely to be wanting to use it as well. 
Um, but you know, I think there's there's a fair argument that at least to some extent Apple's handicapping itself when it comes to these kind of personal recommendation engines and proactive assistants. Now, Apple's not the only business to sort of suffer, even if it's the tiniest bit, because of its privacy stance. Apple's also worked with others that really resent its approach to privacy. I remember when Newsstand came out, there was a lot of tension because the the publications that were putting magazines on newsstand weren't able to collect personal information unless the user opted in. Um, and obviously a lot of people wouldn't do that unless they had a good reason to. Um, Apple Pay is another interesting privacy problem because your information, your payment information is anonymized at the point of sale. Uh, there, was that, there was that article in the New York Times a few years back about how Target knew that this guy's daughter was pregnant before he knew. And it was because Target got so good at tracking payment, or sorry, purchasing habits, it was able to figure out that there was a pregnancy in this home um, based on the, the sort of things that were being purchased. And Apple Pay takes that opportunity away too. How much of a burden do you think Apple bears by not, but in its partnerships with other types of organizations, with other types of companies because of this privacy stance? Yeah, I think it's challenging because there are, you know, whether it's developers, whether it's content uh, providers, whether it's retailers or whatever, there are always these trade-offs. Uh, and yet it is a trade-off, and I think it needs to be seen that way because Apple has this stance, and therefore it tends to attract a certain kind of customer that is very protective of their privacy. And oftentimes that may be a wealthier customer, that may be a customer that's willing to spend more money on things, and so on. And so in some ways those are some of the most attractive customers for retailers, content providers, app developers, and so on to go after. And this is why, you know, despite the fact that Android is now several times larger than iOS as, a, as an installed base of devices, um, many developers still target iOS first because it's easier, it's simpler, you've got fewer devices, but especially because your revenue opportunity is far greater on iOS than it is on Android. And so there's always this trade-off to be made. Um, but, you know, it's also, this is a key reason why people buy, you know, Apple devices, at least in some cases, is that they are very respectful of privacy and they're not going to sell your information or even collect much of it in the first place. And so, you know, there are absolutely trade-offs, but they have to be seen in that context. It's not all downside by any means. Yeah. Well, are there any other? I think the reason we've narrowed this to smartphones is because if there's a device we own that's going to be the most intrusive into our private lives, it's going to be the phone more than computers or anything else we're using, televisions. Um, so, are there any other? Is there a last takeaway, a last thought you want to share as far as our privacy is concerned when it comes to smartphones? Yeah, I, I think obviously, you know, the, the companies that make the platforms are only some of those that are involved here. And obviously there are companies that make apps, you know, Facebook being a great example that also frequently have, you know, stories about respecting or not respecting privacy and so on. And I went back a few months ago and, and did a bunch of research looking at past news articles about Apple, Google, Facebook and Microsoft as relates to privacy specifically and security. And what you find is very different kinds of stories about these different companies. With Apple, the only real stories were one ones where the device was uh, inadvertently collecting a certain kind of information or where there were ways to expose that information even though the user didn't want them to and it was you know as a bug for the most part rather than a feature as it were um, with Google the stories were typically about um, you know collecting lots of data that Google would use uh, and with Facebook the stories tended to be about accidentally exposing information to other users that users didn't realize that they were exposing uh, Microsoft tended to have relatively few of these stories, partly because it's a much smaller smartphone platform, uh, but they were kind of a mix of the other kinds. So each of these companies has its own challenges, its own kind of Achilles heel in terms of security. And I think if our Apple has one, it's it's that because it kind of has this stance about keeping things on the device, it tends not to be as strong on security as it is as other companies are. So we had this iCloud hack a while back, which was partly about brute force and partly about lack of two-factor authentication and things like that, which other cloud platforms have in place. And Apple now has fixed some of those things. Uh, but I think sometimes Apple over relies on its inherent privacy and stance uh, and under relies on security precautions, whereas the others, knowing that they are collecting a lot of data, tend to be a bit better at protecting stuff. But each of them has their own weaknesses, and that extends to you know Facebook as perhaps the best example of an app, but many other apps too. Um, and again, Apple is better at making sure apps don't capture uh, or even try to capture information they don't really need to do their jobs, whereas Android is much less protective on that basis. 
Yeah, well, it will be interesting to see how this plays out over the next few years. I think if there's ever been a time that people's attention has been heightened as far as privacy goes, it's now. And uh, I'm curious to see what the next few years will bring. I, I do think personally that Apple, by, by being so public and vocal about its stance on privacy, is also holding itself to a higher standard. I think if Apple has a, a major privacy misstep, I think people will be less forgiving to Apple than they will to Google because Google is just being Google. It's kind right. of the attitude people will have. So. Yeah, and there definitely are different standards that they hold themselves to, but therefore that users hold them to as well. Right. All right. Well, let's move on to our third topic, which is payments. And, and the news this week was that Current C, um, which is one of the sort of up-and-coming payment platforms, and we can talk about what extent it really is coming, um, de has delayed its launch until next year. It's lost a couple of its major backers um, from among retailers. I think Rite Aid was the most prominent one this week. Best Buy had previously said that it was um, going to support Apple Pay. And one of the, the features of Current C is that um, it was supposed to be exclusive. So if you backed that payment platform, you couldn't also support Apple Pay, for example. So Best Buy was the first to break ranks. Rite Aid announced it would this week. And there's been stories that that the whole launch of currency would be delayed until next year. And at this point, there are questions about whether it will even ever launch eventually. Um, Samsung, on the day that we're doing this, um, has just announced um, details around Samsung Pay, which is its own sort of alternative to Apple Pay that uses a magnetic field to mimic the magnetic stripe on uh, traditional credit cards, which means that it works with a lot of existing terminals and doesn't require NFC as Apple Pay does. Um, Google's obviously working on Google Pay that was announced at I.O. in the summer and should be launching this fall. So there's lots of activity in this area, um, lots of competing platforms and so on. And, you know, Apple Pay is the only one that's really been out there for several months already. Um, but, you know, there's clearly lots of room for, for growth still in this whole space. But Aaron, what's kind of your take on where things are at the moment? You know, I think mobile payment, uh, or sorry, I should say payments using mobile devices is, is really going to be uh, a very common thing in the future. I mean, a lot of people are using Apple Pay now, but it's really a drop in the bucket compared to the people that are still pulling out their credit cards when they buy their groceries. I, I think there's going to be a change in that over the next couple of years where the vast majority of people are going to be using their mobile devices to pay. I, th I think the small conveniences are just too important to ignore. Um, and uh, being able to pay by mobile is really convenient. I think that's where currency really blew it, um, is because when Apple Pay came out, it was an order of magnitude more convenient to use than the, what currency had been planning. I don't know if you ever read the details on how currency payments were supposed to work, but it was essentially going to be a smartphone app that first you'd have to launch the app, and then you'd bring it up, and then you'd have to type a pin, and then you'd have to actually hand your device over to the person at the register who would then look at your device. I, I mean, it was so full of just tension, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and just so uh, many steps. Or, or I should say friction, right? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. uh, and and it was kind of baffling that, that retailers thought they could get away with this. I think the problems were two. One, they're working really hard to avoid uh, – credit card fees and that was kind of the whole point of this currency uh endeavor was to sort of get out from under the thumb of a visa and mastercard because the idea is that currency would tie directly to your bank account so it wouldn't actually be a credit card transaction now of course the risk of that is kind of crazy because it means your bank account is tied to a device that if somebody was able to steal and use they could draw money straight from your bank account you wouldn't have any fraud protection associated with that Right. Um, but then there's also the, the data tracking, actually. There's one of the big benefits to currency for retailers was it was a data gold mine. And uh, Apple Pay is at the other end of the spectrum from that, like we talked about. And, and so I think those two incentives entirely benefited retailers and came at a high cost to purchasers. And I think that's why it will never really get off the ground because it's asking too much from consumers just to benefit the retailers. Yeah. I mean, I think the exclusivity was something that maybe made sense to somebody inside that organization at the time, but it was really the thing that will probably end up killing it off because it, it forced retailers to choose between something that was available today and clearly very popular. Um, and conversely, if they didn't offer, was a, was a turn off to potential customers and something that was kind of theoretical and coming down the line and that 
seem to have flawed in all kinds of different ways. And so I think, you know, aside from all the stuff that you've already mentioned, I think the very exclusivity thing was also a big barrier because it just forced these companies to choose. And several of them are now broken ranks, and it seems likely that more and more of them will do so. Um, whereas, you know, Apple Pay is, is just much simpler to use. So so we have Samsung coming out, and they're, they're big advantages that they can work with traditional payment terminals in many cases and it won't work with absolutely all of them so like gas pumps i think for example where you have to actually stick your card inside a terminal uh, rather than simply swiping it won't work in quite the same way um you know the other big challenge though for for samsung pay is that this is all designed to work with swiping cards and yet we're about to go through what's um, usually referred to as the liability shift in the payment card industry in the U.S., where in October of this year, um, the liability for fraudulent transactions will shift from card issuers to retailers. Um, and that's because cards are going to be fitted with uh, chips, uh, as have been in use in Europe for quite some time now and other parts of the world, uh, that will securely identify uh, and authenticate each transaction as it's made. Um, and typically it's protected by a PIN. And the U.S. has always been absolutely awful um, at authenticating transactions. You know, it was a huge shock when I moved here when you hand your card over to pay and they don't even look at the back of the card at the signature even though you've just signed and that's the way you're authenticating the transaction. You know, somebody coming from Europe, it was absolutely baffling that that could be the case, but that is the way it works here at the moment. But this liability shift means we're moving to chip and PIN card models um, and I'm not sure how well Samsung Pay is going to work in that environment when everything's based on these new types of cards. Um, and so it seems to work well today, but we've got just a couple of months now until we have this liability shift and a huge shift among retailers to these new payment terminals. At the same time, these new payment terminals, in many cases, since they're being upgraded anyway, will be upgraded to support NFC, which means that many more retailers will be able to accept Apple Pay. So. You know, there's all kinds of interesting kind of headwinds for, for Samsung here. Um, the other thing, of course, is Google's payments efforts. And they've had Android wallet, Google Wallet in the past um, in Android, but that was very limited by lack of carrier support and, and, uh, and at the time, low NFC penetration, both in phones and uh, retailers. And, and that's kind of being replaced now by a new payment platform. And one scenario I see shaping up is that essentially Apple dominates payments with Apple Pay for people who can use it on iPhones and Apple Watches to a lesser extent, uh, whereas Google basically scoops up a lot of the rest of the market and Samsung largely fails uh, because its platform will be the smallest installed base of all of these um, and you know currency fails to get off the ground. I think that's one possible scenario. Um, Aaron, kind of any thoughts about how all this might play out? Yeah, I, I do think that the switch to chip and pin means that uh, NFC payments are going to be much more uh, available kind of wherever you go. Um, as far as, as Google Wallet is concerned, or I should say Google Pay, um, I, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see the uptake there. Apple users tend to tend to engage with Apple feature feature sets. So when Apple develops a new feature, Apple users tend to pick those up more quickly than Android users do, I think. I mean, if you look, for example, at mobile web usage, you know, comparing iOS to Android, a lot more people check the web with their phones, uh, if they're iPhones, than they do with Android phones. And, and I think that's kind of an indicator of how many people will be aware of and, and take advantage of Google Pay on their Android phones. Um, I, I also think chip and pin is going to create kind of an inertia moment for people that haven't ever bothered to get using, uh, to start using mobile payment platforms if they've had them. Uh, there's still a big upgrade cycle as far as Apple Pay goes to happen. There's still a lot of people who have iPhones that don't have Apple Pay capable phones. Um, but that'll change with the success. I think there'll be a big upgrade push there. Um, but I do think that when the switch happens to chip and pin, it's going to bring everybody's attention to sort of how credit card payments work today. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to move people to try Apple Pay that maybe have held out. Yeah, and I think, too, the, the fact that it's actually going to become a more involved process with chip and pin. It's going to be more secure, to be sure, but it's also going to involve more steps that the advantages of phone-based payments will actually increase as well. 
I guess the, the big question I have is given that Apple Pay is never likely to make its way off iPhones and onto Android devices, you know, what is the rest of the world going to use? And there's two possible scenarios as I see it. You know, one is that Android users just never uh, make that switch or don't make it anytime soon to mobile payments and those users largely stick with credit cards. Or the other scenario is that over time, Android essentially, you know, captures the vast majority of the Android market with Android Pay. Um, and that seems more likely as a long-term scenario, but but to your point, the challenge with Android is always that you know there's this theoretical version of Android that exists at any given point in time, and then there's the version of Android that people are actually using in the real world, um, and they're not usually the same. So the latest version is never the most uh, used version of Android. It's usually the second most recent version that's the most used. And um, you also obviously need NFC and other chip support in devices and you need device vendors and carriers to officially certify the use of the secure elements and things like that within these phones. So, you know, whereas Apple can kind of launch something like Apple Pay and it's available within weeks um, of the announcement with Android Pay, it's going to be, you know, months before, you know, even a small minority of uh, Android users in the wild is actually able to use Android Pay. And so, it does mean that it's probably going to take quite a bit longer for this stuff to take off on Android than it will on, on iPhones. Yeah, and I think that's going to continue to be a competitive advantage to encourage switchers to iOS from Android. In fact, uh, Phil Schiller just this morning tweeted about a blogger named Joe Casabona, who was a prominent Android user and supporter and finally switched to an iPhone after making it, trying it out for two months as his exclusive device. And one of the reasons he cited is the convenience of Apple Pay. And a lot of that is tied into Touch ID and, and nobody yet has really matched the convenience of Touch ID and that's part of what makes Apple Pay such a convenient platform because you really just hold your phone up and have your finger on the Touch ID sensor and you're done. And uh, those small conveniences go a really long way. Yeah, it's true. It's it's interesting. I mean, as an aside, I think that that particular blogger. I don't think this was what it was, but it you know you have one way of looking at this whole thing was the most expert piece of clickbaiting ever. Because on the one hand, two months ago he uh, put out a piece about how he'd switch, how he tried iPhone and didn't like it, went back to Android. So he got <laughs> masses of traffic from all the Android blogs, and now having actually made the switch to the iPhone, after all, he's getting the same amount of traffic from all the Apple bloggers. So you know, as I said, I don't think that was his intention from the beginning but you know if it was it was absolutely genius um but you mentioned another piece that phil schiller had retweeted as well which i think was an iMore piece about apple pay right it was uh it was craig hockenberry and his credit card number was compromised and he called it in they canceled his card number and he realized he's gonna have to wait for new credit cards to show up in the mail before he could use them which is a major inconvenience but then on a lark, he went to a retailer that accepted Apple Pay and decided he would try Apple Pay anyway, even though his card was sort of in this limbo status, was waiting for the new cards to show up. And sure enough, it worked. And the reason was because uh, Apple Pay automatically updated with the new credit card information. He didn't have to enter any new credit card or anything. It just He called it automagically secure. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was the phrase that Phil Schiller picked up on when he retweeted the article. But it is a really cool thing. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. I got stung by both the Home Depot and the Target credit card data breaches. And so I had to get two new credit card numbers within a year. And that's a real pain, especially when you consider, you know, all the places where you set up cards for automatic payments. Uh, and having to do that twice in one year was a huge hassle. And the idea that all of that can sort of be fixed with the technology that's behind Apple Pay is really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, I think we're about out of time on that third topic, so we'll leave that yeah. one there. Um, we'll go on to our last little segment, which is our weekly pick. And Aaron, it's your turn this week. So what... And as a reminder to, to listeners, we uh, we have each week one of us takes a turn to recommend something that we've been using. Could be a, a digital product, could be a real world product that we've something we've discovered that other people might not be aware of that we want to recommend. So, Aaron, what's your pick this week? So a few years ago, or a few weeks ago, sorry, I recommended the the flip belt, which is a running accessory. It's a really easy, convenient way to carry like your phone or keys. I'm I'm still on the running theme, and what I want to uh, recommend this week is a shoe manufacturer called Ultra Running. It's A L T R A Running.com. Um, they're actually a Utah company that manufacture a unique running shoe that I've been wearing for, let's see, it's been about two years now, and I really love them. 
the, the advantages of ultra running are kind of in two major innovations. Um, one is in the shape of the foot box. So the foot box in a, sh in a shoe is where your toes sit essentially. A lot of running shoes have very narrow foot boxes, meaning your toes are kind of cramped together. This is why if you go to a running store to get a, fitted for a pair of running shoes, they always upsize you. Like they always say you need to buy a size larger than you normally would wear. And the reason is because when you run, you, your feet essentially swell, especially the front of your foot. And your toes need room to sort of spread out. And this is why people buy oversized running shoes is because manufacturers have always made really narrow toe boxes. Well, Ultra solves that problem by just making a really wide foot box. And so it gives plenty of room for your toes to spread out as you run, which is a lot healthier and avoids weird problems as you run longer distances. Um, the other innovation is they don't have a stacked heel like a lot of other running companies do with their shoes. If you'll notice a lot of running, a lot of running shoes are kind of wedge shaped in the sole, meaning they're stacked higher in the heel than they are at the front. And the reason is because people come crashing down on their heel as they run and so the, the reasoning was well let's put lots of cushioning there. The problem with running that way is you put a ton of strain on your ankles, knees and hips and usually a lot of running injuries are caused by that. The, the correct way to run when you're running longer distances is to have your foot land directly below your knee as you run. They call it short striding. It's sort of like the feeling of if you were trying to run right behind somebody um, that was running also. You can't kick your feet out in front because you'll trip them up. And what's cool about ultra shoes is they, they essentially have this zero drop. So there's plenty of cushioning all along, but they don't have the stacked heel. And that encourages this healthier kind of running where you're dropping your foot directly underneath your knee. Um, they've won all kinds of awards from uh, Runner's Magazine. Um, best New Debut, Editor's Choice, um, Editor's Pick. And they have trail shoes and street shoes, and, and they have a good variety um, it's a pretty awesome company and if you want some, sh and, and the truth is even if you're just wearing these shoes to walk around, they're much healthier shoe to wear because they let your feet sort of assume its natural position as you walk around. So, so that's my pick for the week is ultra running shoes and you can get them from the website. They're sold in a lot of retailers around the United States. You can get them on Amazon, all kinds of places. Cool. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah, I th I'm pretty sure my wife has a pair of those that she got from your wife. So I know <laughs> she, she likes them a lot too. They, they show, she was having shin splints quite a bit and she got a pair of those and it kind of helped her too. So, so yes, I'm seconded at least indirectly from my side. So uh, thanks, Aaron. Thank you to all of you for listening to us this week. Um, we appreciate you being with us. Uh, feel free to leave us a comment on our website or a review on iTunes. Those are much appreciated. And we look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks.